Punches Reality, 
presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and most of the time this show is all about comics, movies, and TV shows, but right now I'm working through what looks to be nearly a year's worth of six-episode miniseries dedicated to one specific character, topic, idea, theme, or whatever else. The series that I'm bashing through right now is actually a good example of what I'm talking about. This show is right around the middle of a mini-series about women in comics. Now's a good time to mention that I often think up some silly name for these mini-series, but I just wasn't able to think of a title for this mini-series about women in comics. Or at least one that didn't sound slightly misogynistic. So, I took the easy way out and figured I'd just call this series Women in Comics. Okay, whatever. I've had less creative names for series before. Superman Begins, I'm looking right at you. Still, the main idea here shouldn't require very much explanation. Surely you all realize that the comic book format mostly revolves around men. Now... For those of you who care about such things, that's a generality. And as generalities go, it's not as true now as it was even just a few years ago. I think we can all agree on that, but I don't think it'd be inaccurate to suggest that comics tend to be about men and created by men, even now. And I don't mean that to sound all politically correct and shit, because that always annoys me when I listen to podcasts. So it'd be hypocritical of me to do that to you guys. But that stuff aside, I enjoy women in comics. So I thought it'd be fun to talk about female comic book characters for quite a while now, you know? And as far as the comics in this miniseries go... Maybe I've read them in the past, or maybe they're totally new to me now, but no matter what, they're still about women. Yeah, anyway, my point is that there were no shortage of cool female characters to choose from when I really started looking. And one of those characters is Matrix, also known as Supergirl, also known as Linda Danvers. Now, I've always liked Matrix. I dig her. Um, I, I dig her powers. I dig her outfit. The whole thing. There wasn't very much about Matrix that I didn't enjoy, actually. And when I first found out that she was getting her own title, I was overjoyed. But that joy quickly turned to shock and then horror. But I should probably save that one for later. But for right now, we should probably get into... Supergirl number one. The title is Body and Soul. Cover date is September 1996. Executive editor is Mike Carlin. Cover artist is Gary Frank. Writer is Peter David. Penciler is Gary Frank. Inker is Cam Smith. Colorists are Gene D'Angelo and Digital Chameleon. Letterer is Patricia Prentice. Editor is Chris Duffy. Linda Danvers kneels in her shower trying to wash blood off herself. She has no idea what's happened to her. All she knows is, one, she's in pain, and two, she's praying to God. 
Both of these seem like foreign concepts to her for some reason. When her close friend Maddie uh, enters the apartment, Linda learns that she'd been kidnapped and has been presumed dead. In shock, Linda rushes out of the apartment. As she runs along the street, she foils a suicide attempt by someone called Mr. Loeb. Confused by her ability to run at incredible speeds and also to fly, Linda goes to a newspaper office for more information. There she meets Cutter Sharp, a nobody reporter who's stunned to see her alive and unharmed. Elsewhere, police are standing guard outside a burnt-out warehouse trying to chase gawkers, tourists, and rubberneckers away. A kid named Buzz surveys the carnage while some sort of demonic entity hovers over his shoulder, bitching and whining about how his entrance into this plane of existence has been thwarted. Buzz tells him to pipe down, because it's all going to work out in the end. Back at the news office, Cutter tells Linda that it's widely known that there was a shit-ton of destruction caused when Supergirl came to Leesburg at her parents' request and then flew to, her, to Linda's rescue. The resulting devastation was believed to have killed both Supergirl and Linda. From there, Linda slowly begins to remember some of what's happened. She remembers snatches and fragments of pagan human sacrifice rituals and creepy shit like that. She remembers seeing herself as Supergirl fly through the fl uh, flames and come crashing into the room to her rescue. And she also remembers seeing herself as Linda engulfed in flames. She begins to understand that Linda was as good as dead until Supergirl arrived on the scene. But then, Supergirl's protoplasmic body somehow fused itself with Linda's soul. The bonding process saved Linda's life and caused temporary memory loss for Supergirl. She rushes off to get Supergirl's uniform, realizing that she's both Linda Danvers and Supergirl, and takes to the skies. To be continued. Which leads us into Supergirl number two. The story title is Cat's Paw. Cover date is October 1996. Executive editor is Mike Carlin. Cover artist is Gary Frank. Writer is Peter David. Penciler is Gary Frank. Inker is Cam Smith. Colorists are Gene D'Angelo and Digital Chameleon. Letterer is Patricia Prentice. Editor is Chris Duffy. Supergirl sorting through Linda's pictures, trying to get an understanding of her own life that she doesn't even completely remember anymore. She sees a picture of Buzz and recognizes him as the guy who stabbed her during the pagan ritual. Suddenly, Linda's parents drop into the room to see her. Linda hides in the closet to conceal her Supergirl outfit. She suddenly realizes that she doesn't have the ability to transmute matter anymore. Her Supergirl outfit remains her Supergirl outfit, even though her countenance is now Linda's. Supergirl has an emotional reunion with Linda's parents, who are now her parents, before they leave her alone to change clothes. Elsewhere, Cutter sees the cultists seemingly kidnap another child, presumably for another pagan human sacrifice, so he follows after them. Back at the Denver's house, the parents Danvers bust Linda's balls about refusing medical or psychiatric treatment following her ordeal. Linda swears that she's just fine when out of nowhere she sees an astral projection of Shakat, the aforementioned demonic entity that Buzz talked to back in the first issue. From there, Buzz once again tells Shakat to get himself under control because the shit's getting real soon. And at that moment, the Colt van and Cutter both arrive on the scene.
The cultists ambush and then kidnap Cutter. At the Leesburg Hospital, Dr. Winters explains to Mr. and Mrs. Danvers and Maddie that there appears to be absolutely, positively nothing wrong with Linda. Apart from the fact that her eyes have changed from brown to blue, she's exactly the way that she was before. And even the change in eye color can be written off due to the stress that she's been under lately. In the doctor's office, Linda mopes over the fact that she loves Mr. and Mrs. Danvers' parents, even though they're basically strangers to her. She's never felt this type of connection to anybody before, but can't reconcile that with the fact that she doesn't even know the Danvers. At that moment, an astral projection of Buzz drops in on her and shows her an ugly detail exactly who Linda Danvers really is. Buzz shows her memories from the night Linda helped murder someone. And Supergirl comes to realize that Linda is no victim. At least, she wasn't at first. At first, she was a willing accomplice to evil and murder. Linda swoops out of the doctor's office, switches into her Supergirl uniform, and tracks Buzz to an old abandoned movie theater in the old abandoned building district of Leesburg. Supergirl arrives just in time to do battle with Shakat, who now has free access to this dimension. Supergirl drives him back through the portal to wherever the hell he's from, and they beat the fertilizer out of each other a little bit more. Shakat tries to stab Supergirl with a giant fucking knife, but she snaps off the handle, stabs Shakat with it, and then flings it off into the distance, somehow positive that this will turn the tide of the battle, against the evil cat demon that she's fighting. Back in the real world, Buzz flees the movie theater and directs the cops inside so that he can make his escape. Back in the netherworld, Supergirl tells Shakat that she intentionally sent his blood flying all over the place after stabbing him with the knife shard, hoping that it would lure predators to the area. And it does just that as dog demons swoom in, swoop in on the scene uh, to get a piece of Shakat. Supergirl swoops back through the dimensional barrier, scoops up Cutter, and zips out of the building right as it detonates from all the magical whoozy what's going on. She deposits Cutter into the hospital, reflecting all the while that Leesburg is the epicenter of some type of spiritual battle taking place between the forces of good and the forces of darkness. Supergirl reflects on the fact that Linda Danvers was one sick, evil, twisted bitch, and that she would have been dead if Supergirl hadn't come to the rescue. She then reasons that Linda was chosen to be saved for a reason. And Supergirl was chosen to be the instrument of that rescue, also for a reason. And because of all that, she must find out what those reasons are. To be continued. Which leads us into Supergirl number three. Story title is, And No Dawn to Follow the Darkness. Cover date is November 1996. Executive editor is Mike Carlin. Cover artist is Gary Frank. Writer is Peter David. Penciler is Gary Frank. Inker is Cam Smith. Colorists are Gene D'Angelo and Digital Chameleon. Letterer is Patricia Prentice. Editor is Chris Duffy. As is Peter David's supposed curse, this series is immediately dropped into a company-wide crossover. It's the final night. The sun's been extinguished and mankind is facing extinction if something isn't done soon. Supergirl tries to keep the chaos in Leesburg from bubbling over, but ends up getting overwhelmed by an angry mob. She tries to turn invisible, but discovers that she no longer has that ability. 
She gets forced to the ground by the mob before the riot cops led by Mr. Danvers calm the whole shit down. But one really pissed off guy tries to force Supergirl into a chokehold. She shows him the error of his ways by whisking him off several thousand feet to the air. Elsewhere, Buzz meets with a different anthropomorphic animal. He gives the animal an artifact or talisman of some kind. The animal questions how much of a future the world in general, and Leesburg in particular really have, but Buzz is very optimistic about the future. So far, he's the only guy in town who believes in a better tomorrow. Elsewhere, Mrs. Danvers cruises the streets of Leesburg with a PA attached to her car while she reads from the Bible in an attempt to comfort people and invite them to church with her. For her troubles, her car gets attacked by a different angry mob than the one that accosted Supergirl. Now excuse me while I take a drink off my Coke here. Meanwhile, a black dude's all freaked out by all the weird shit he's seeing and decides to find cover inside of an electronics store. That turns out to be his biggest and final mistake as the owner uh, mistakes him for a looter and blows him into the next world with a shotgun. As all that's going on, Supergirl's hanging around the Leesburg police station with her father. Supergirl explains why she didn't kick the fertilizer out of the entire angry mob that attacked her. Supergirl says that she's trying to help people, not hurt them. They can't hurt her, so why not let them get some of their anger out by pushing her around? Supergirl then swoops out of the window to look for trouble while Officer Danvers gets called back to duty. In the hospital, Cutter watches the city tear itself apart and decides that he needs to be out there reporting on everything that's going on. On his way out, Cutter tells Dr. Harcourt that she should be with her loved ones right now. Dr. Harcourt tries to call her brother, but she can't th uh, get through to him because the store owner that I mentioned a few minutes ago mistook him for a looter and blew him into the next life with a shotgun. The store owner, meanwhile, is standing proudly over the dead body while he crushes the guy's cell phone in his hand as he takes on a more feral and animal-like appearance. And I am going to take another sip off my Coke. Elsewhere, Supergirl sees Mrs. Danvers trapped inside her car while it burns. She tries to rescue her, but keeps getting attacked by insane citizens. And then, Mrs. Danvers' car explodes. Meanwhile, at United Methodist Church, Reverend Varvel is also becoming more and more feral. Back at the hospital, Dr. Harcourt's decided to abandon her post. A, a, a nurse tries to stop her and finds that the doctor's also becoming a feral beast. Elsewhere, Supergirl's managed to snatch her, mo her mom out of the exploding car just in time. As she flies over Leesburg, she witnesses complete social disintegration. She comes to realize that we've come so far as a human race, and now we're also losing everything. She also realizes that this is the first time she's ever thought about humanity, and used the word, we. After dropping her mom off at the church, Supergirl sits on the roof and wonders where she should start looking. Buzz appears out of nowhere and suggests that she look inside herself. Supergirl moves to pounce on Buzz, but before she can beat the piss out of him, she hears all kinds of chaos erupting inside the church and goes to check it out. 
There she finds that Gorilla Grodd is the one responsible for turning the town of Leesburg into a chaotic pit of feral, beast-like people using the talisman that Buzz gave him earlier in this issue. Supergirl tries to pounce on Grodd, but he gives her a helping of the talisman too, at which time she becomes a mindless beast as well. To be continued. But not in this episode. So, what did I think? Very bluntly, I was pissed off when I first heard about all the stuff that Peter David did to Supergirl in this book. I heard about it mostly secondhand because as a lowly teenager on pretty much no budget, I didn't really have the money to collect this book as well as all the other ones that I followed. Still, it kind of pissed me off that David thought the Matrix version of Supergirl was apparently not interesting enough to carry her own book. So he had to go and reinvent her in his own image and basically turn the character on her head and transform her into something that she never was before. And in a strange kind of way, that's sort of how I feel about it now. But time has a funny way of shifting one's perspective on these things. Yes, the snooty Matrix fan in me still prefers the pre-David version of this character, but at the same time, you can't really argue that David didn't do an amazing job with Matrix in just these few issues that I've gone through right here. For starters, it's completely logical that Matrix would consider herself apart from, even alienated from, humanity. Now, granted, that had never been explicit or implicit to her character before, but somehow it still rings completely true. This was the missing element that Matrix always needed. You see, in this era of comics, we were dealing with a Superman who was already very comfortable in his own skin. His identity was founded upon a fundamentally human point of view. He had quirky genetics, no question about it, but on a psychological level, he was human. And he was very much at peace with his alien heritage. So, to distinguish Matrix from Superman, it's thus logical to play up her alienation factor. So, giving her a, a, a more aloof type of perspective is completely organic to her character. But... The idea of limiting Supergirl's power range, bonding her to a sort of human host, and all this other shit, I don't know. It, it just smacked of a snooty, superior attitude to the original character. It felt like Peter David looked down his nose at Matrix, and that just pissed me off. I mean, is that how David really felt about Matrix? I have no way of knowing, but considering how far he went out of his way to completely reinvent the character, I hope you can at least see my point here. But whatever, it's water under the bridge now. It's done, and it can't be undone. So the real question is, how good is the work itself? Pretty damn good, to be honest. It's one thing to, to want to bond Matrix to a human in order to give her a human point of view. It's something else entirely to make that human Linda 
Danvers as sick a fuck as I can possibly imagine. Linda wasn't a victim. She was a dark, twisted soul who arguably just got what was coming to her. The change in perspective that Matrix starts undergoing in these issues is really just the tip of the iceberg compared to what else is coming in the series. She goes through some major changes, and ultimately those work to benefit the character. So, on the one hand, I don't want to complain too much. But on the other hand, damn it, I spent years reading about Supergirl as a supporting character in the Superman titles of the time. And I kind of half-ass wanted her to get her own series, but for crying out loud, not on these terms. But again, as an adult, I cherish what David ultimately did with this character. None of it was meaningless, and all of it enhanced who she already was. The old version of the character wasn't just swept under the rug and forgotten about. The pre-David version of Matrix is crucial to everything that happens starting in the first issue and going right on through to Matrix being put out to pasture. Another thing that that plays for me in all of this is the kind of sort of horror movie tone of the book. Now don't get me wrong. I'd cry bloody fucking murder if this was the direction that Superman books were, were ever taken, but like everything else with this series, the paranormal shit is a perfect match for this character. Again, this paranormal stuff is essential considering what's coming on later in the series. Now, a lot of people have compared this Supergirl series to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and the reason for that is because Supergirl and Buffy started at around the same time, they hit similar tones, and there's just way too much common ground there to ignore. It's especially interesting since there's no possible way that one could have influenced the other. It's weird how two such similar concepts could come around at the same time, but it happens once in a while. I mean, it's fucked up, but there it is. Speaking of the horror style, I went on the record long ago about my distaste for Gary Frank's art. And I stand by it, too. I generally don't think that Frank is a good match for mainstream superhero stuff because his natural tendency is apparently to want to go to some kind of weird, creepy vertigo style. The very elements of Gary Frank's art style and storytelling capabilities that that make him a, just a piss-fucking-poor choice as the primary Superman artist are the exact things that make him a perfect fit for this series. Leesburg is a town full of darkness, demons, and evil. Pagan cults are never too far around the corner. And even the citizens have more than their share of secrets and dark sides. Under the circumstances, th all of that shit makes Gary Frank a great choice to illustrate this series. Now, it's not a spoiler to say that Frank doesn't stick around all that long in the grand scheme of things. And I'll also say that when he does finally leave the book, I don't know. I mean... 
I don't want to say that the series never recovers, because it does. But at the same time, you can't argue that the tone of the book didn't radically change once other artists came to replace Gary Frank. And they just didn't capture the same creepy atmosphere that Frank specialized in. So, it's a two-edged sword there. So, when all said and done, I really enjoyed this series. In the long term, I think Peter David had amazing insight into the characters, and he brought a shitload of really unique and fresh ideas to the table. And even though this isn't the character that appears in the comics anymore, nobody can ever take away how much David did to mature and grow Matrix into a better developed character. And come on, I can't be the only one who noticed the pot shot that Peter David took at Jeff Loeb in the first issue, right? I mean, cheeky insults like that are, are humor that money can't buy. So, I guess what I'm saying here is, if you've had the same prejudice against this title that I did for a long time there, you, you still really owe it to yourself to, to read the book and get a clearer idea of what David was going for here. At the very least, you should read the first nine issues of the title. If you're not on board with the series after that, I won't say another word about it. But something tells me you'll be hooked long before you finish the ninth issue. Now, as with so much stuff from the 90s, this is a title that DC seems, I don't know, a little eager to forget about because not much of it's ever been collected into a trade paperback. And that's a damn shame because David not only came up with some amazing concepts for the series, but he also told some really neat stories as well. And that's worth something in the end. Anyway, just give it a shot. That's all I'm asking for here. As to the future, if I were a betting man, I'd say that I'd probably come back to Supergirl sooner or later. No idea when, because, as I said before, the next year or so is dedicated to miniseries and stuff, and most of those aren't likely to take me back to this series all that much. But it could happen much later on that I come back to this, to this title. Nothing's planned right now, you understand, but you never know what popular demand might get you. As for me, I'm going to take a break and be right back after these messages. Star Trek Comic Books Mythology Video Games Toys Star Wars Just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on the Hammer Podcast, presented by two true freaks. Come join me. Gene Hendricks, for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with, and be careful, or you might just learn something before we're done. 
The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at twotruefreaks.com. When you think of podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. I kick ass for the Lord! Dorkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith religion, and spirituality. But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Well, think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. This is an occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history. Because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out dorknesstolight.blogspot.com for our more regular content. Or dorknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content. Memes and puns, mostly. My bad. Dorkness to Light. Often irreverent, rarely sacrilegious. couple of things I want to talk about a little bit and I guess it could have been feedback but it just feels like right now there's something else on the table that is kind of demanding my attention here so excuse me while I if you if you hear a sound along the lines of this that is the sound of me vaping so if you just hear me pause now and then and uh, pull off uh, my e-cig, well, that's basically what you're hearing. It's just, it's me vaping. Try to ignore it. Or don't ignore it. Just, you know, whatever. Whatever your reaction to it's going to be. So, anyway. A couple of days ago, I had occasion to watch The Death of Superman Lives. What happened? And for those of you who don't know, it's a look back at what might have been with Tim Burton's Superman Lives film, you know? The idea that the director of The Death of Superman Lives had, his name is, I believe it's uh, John Schnepp, but the, the idea that he had was to just take a look back at this movie and I guess the artistic sort of trajectory that it was on, 
analyze, I guess, what might have been, but also, as the title of the thing would suggest, talk about what exactly it was that happened, you know? Why didn't this film end up getting made? And, I mean, to be fair, there are a lot of Superman productions that just never got underway. Some are more famous than others. For those of you who read Comic Scene magazine back in the late 80s and early 90s, I'm sure you all remember seeing their little listing of upcoming films and seeing Superman 5 listed as one of those films that it's just around the corner, they're going to go into production any moment now and all of that stuff. And to be honest about it, I guess to sort of tangent for a minute, I mean, to be honest about it, I would kind of like to have seen Superman 5, you know, what it was that that film might have been, you know, because it feels like Ilya Salkind, because I believe the uh, Salkinds had gotten the rights to Superman back by then, he was finally going to be able to achieve his dream of having Brainiac in a Superman film, and so what might that have been like? I'd kind of wish we could have gotten that, but we didn't. And that was kind of it for Superman films for a long time. I, there was this sort of detour that Superman took on television with Lois and Clark. And it's not that you can't have dual live-action adaptations of a given character going at any given time, least of all Superman. It just felt for some reason or another like there was no real chance of another Superman film being made so long as Lois and Clark was on the air. There were just too many corporate resources going behind the comics and going behind Lois and Clark for there to be yet another version of Superman out there. And whatever happened, happened, and there came a point when Tim Burton came damned close to making a, a new Superman film, and it was going to be a reboot of sorts. I mean, people didn't really use that that term back then, reboot, but it was going to be more or less a reboot of some kind, and for whatever reason, it just never happened. And so the mission statement for The Death of Superman Lives is really to talk about exactly why that never happened. And I think it's actually fair and just to question just how well The Death of Superman Lives actually fulfills that mandate. And if you're looking for a hard-hitting documentary that names names, points fingers, identifies problems and causes and all that sort of thing, I think The Death of Superman Lives is a little bit of a mixed bag in as much as it doesn't exactly talk too much about what it is that went on and you know the causes of uh, the Tim Burton Superman film just never, never happening. And to be fair, you do get a tasteful amount of that. You know, you do get a little bit of the idea of the corporate culture that was surrounding Warner Brothers at the time and the various factors and whatnot that colored their decisions and ultimately why they pulled the plug. But it's sort of mentioned in passing and it's all very brief. It's all very superficial. And I find the reasons persuasive, but it's just there's not a whole lot of elaboration that's going on there. It's just kind of presented as here's what happened. And then after that, you're sort of left having to kind of interpret all of this stuff for yourself, you know, and whatever. I mean, on the one hand, I don't really feel like it's my business to second guess John Schnepp and the uh, type of film that he wanted to make, you know, what this documentary was supposed to be. 
But on the other hand, I mean, he's the one that actually titled the thing, The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened? And sort of the mission statement that's implied by that is that we're going to find out precisely why this film was never completed, or for that matter, even partly shot. It was uh, The plug was pulled on that thing before they even started production. So maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into the title of that uh, of that documentary and what it suggests about what the content of the documentary might be. But maybe not. I don't know. So there's a degree to which this documentary is sort of what I was afraid it was going to turn into. And way back, this was um, episode 66 of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. I had Michael Bailey on the show. And he and I talked, not at length, but we did talk a little bit about uh, what this documentary is going to be all about. You know, the death of Superman lives and, you know, basically what the end game of this was going to be. And what I said was, since we're on the subject, though, I wonder if this is going to characterize the rest of the episode that we're doing here. But uh, as far as tangents, but (laughs) there's a moment in that documentary that I think has haunted fans for years and it's like we're all afraid to talk about it but there's this moment where they kind of make fun of one of the uh, uh, designs of the Tim Burton Superman outfit which as far as I know was not going to be his main outfit but basically he's got the red cape and then the sort of strange looking kind of black bodysuit with a shiny mm-hmm. metallic uh, symbol on his chest and this is what people seem to point, want to point to over and over and over again to say that that is what that movie would have been like. And the reason I'm, I guess I'm being kind of a pain in the neck about it right now is because I think it's only been in the last 24 hours or something like that that the uh, trailer for – the uh, I think it's called The Death of Superman Lives mm-hmm. uh, got uh, posted to YouTube. Um, just in time for Comic-Con. I mean, I'm not sure if that's necessarily the best timing in the world, but, you know, it's the hand we've been dealt. But you you see these, um, you actually see a little bit of footage of uh, Nicolas Cage wearing what looks like a fairly normal-looking, you know, sort of blue bodysuit with maybe an unfinished symbol or something like that on his chest. And it basically looks like a fairly typical Superman outfit from what, you know, the little glimpses of it that we see and everything. And it... And, and it just that documentary, I think, has gone on to shape conventional wisdom in ways that I just do not think are appropriate at all. So this is my way of saying I, I agree with you. Yeah, well, with with that particular project, you know, to be fair, I think it's probably for the best that it didn't get made. But on the other hand, John Schnepp, who uh, the director and producer of that documentary, uh, you know, it is basically, I think, trying to show the real story behind it because, you know, we live and we've lived in this world for quite some time, but we live in a world where suddenly once something is said enough, it becomes fact. Like, I think people and I'm not trying to insult anybody personally, but I think people actually say, oh, that would have sucked. And it's just been said so much that even people who weren't alive during the development of that and hearing about it, like in Wizard Magazine and all that, I think, uh, you know, are like, oh, yeah, that would have just been terrible. And we don't know that. You know, right. <laughs> we can't know that. It's just not possible. And looking at the designs 
that they were coming up with. While, you know, I, I don't know if it would have been a really good Superman film, it certainly would have been interesting. And the shots that we've seen of Nicolas Cage in the more traditional Superman costume, that's a nice-looking Superman costume, in all honesty. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I was like, okay, that's how you do a Tim Burton-esque Batman suit with Superman where you have kind of rubber muscles and everything. And it didn't look all that bad. So it's just, I'm really looking forward to that documentary actually coming out. Uh, I, 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 I am super looking forward to that. Well, uh, me too. And I guess I'm jazzed about it now in a way that I just wasn't before. Now to kind of cross promote here, um, not that Steve Yunus gives a damn about me one way or the other, but um, John Schnepp was actually on an episode of Radio KAL Live. Yes. At one point, and he was actually at the time. I think he was trying. He was basically promoting the fact that he was going to do some sort of crowdsource financing on the um, on the. Yeah, it was during the Kickstarter campaign. Right, and based on exactly nothing except for the fact that I listened, I was only able to listen to maybe maybe five or maybe ten minutes of that thing, and then I decided to call in because, damn it, that's how I roll. Um, what I did, I guess, what I thought was that he basically was raising money primarily for distribution and he already had like 90 or 95 percent of his content basically figured out and ready to go and so what he needed to do was basically get money to finish and that's not apparently i was so far off when it comes to that what he wanted to do was he wanted to talk to um as much of the crew as possible not least of whom was tim frickin burton right Mm -hmm. now to my knowledge, Tim Burton hasn't really talked publicly a whole lot about whatever that movie was or wasn't going to be or, or whatever happened. Uh, guys, look, you got to understand, that movie apparently left such a bad taste in Tim Burton's mouth. He hasn't worked for Warner Brothers since. But now apparently he is willing to talk about it and kind of loosen up and make jokes about it and everything. And, you know, I guess I did not connect the dots that this is what John Schnepp wanted to do with his documentary. But I'm... And I'm not complaining. It's just I completely did not understand what he, you know, what he was trying to do. And of course, Kevin Smith is going to be in it because he has to fucking be in everything now. But um, yeah, and well, also to be fair, he wrote a couple drafts of the script. So well, I know, well, and and I get that, but it just feels like you know that he was he was part of that process when it had a direction. I mean, maybe it wasn't the best direction, <clears throat> but that movie had a direction. And it really didn't get derailed, at least not too badly, until Tim Burton got involved. And to me, that's the, you know, the part of the story that we don't know details about. I mean, everyone knows. I mean, I think by now we've all seen that little bit from An Evening with Kevin Smith where he has this, I think it's like a 10 or 15 minute story about how he ended up uh, uh, writing drafts of, of the Superman script that they had sitting around you know, rewrote it and everything. And, you know, we've all seen that YouTube video and that's fine, but, you know, it's, it, it just kind of feels like his participation of it for better or for worse. And I am not second guessing John Schnepp on this, especially about a, a product I haven't even seen, which is itself about a product I've haven't even seen, but um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not bashing on the guy for that, but I, I guess it, I, I just feel like, you know, I've heard Ke- uh, Kevin Smith self promote and, and all of the all of that stuff so fucking many times i've seen that that youtube video we all have and you know what we haven't heard is i don't know some random costume designer's point of view on it and it looks like we will 
we haven't heard Tim Burton's point of view on it too much, and it looks like we will. And it just kind of feels like, do we really need Kevin Smith to be in this thing now? Other than saying, oh, by the way, this is actually, you know, what ended up getting Tim Burton's attention. There's a Kevin Smith script. Now let's talk to Tim, you know? So, anyway. That's fair. Carrie Gamble's in it, too, which I'm pretty excited about. How did I not know this? Uh, he, he was one of the uh, art people. Really? Yes. Yeah, he did some designs for it. So you see uh, about halfway through the trailer, you see him talking to a bald guy, and that's Cary Gamble. So that's another reason why I'm kind of excited about it. Yeah, I know. I am too now. All right. Well, tell you what. um, You know what? Maybe we should do another show about that at some point. But uh, (laughs) right now, um, there's something else we need to talk about. And it's funny. In an odd kind of way, that's pretty much how the documentary at least started. You had this this bit with Kevin Smith, and he talked. He sort of repeated the same story that you've heard. You've probably seen the YouTube video a thousand times. This little moment from An Evening with Kevin Smith, the first one, where he talked at length, at great length, in fact, about what exactly it was his experience with working on this Superman movie was like. And it just felt so redundant. You know, I mean, we've heard this before, you know, and honestly, maybe I was being a little bit unfair with John Schnepp and at least hoping that he'd avoid it, because if he's going to do a sort of comprehensive documentary about the death of Superman lives, really, you're kind of doing the material and your audience a disservice if you don't mention how this thing actually started. And it all started in a way with Kevin Smith. So I get that Kevin Smith pretty much has to be in the movie. But number one, we've heard all this before. But number two, I'll be honest with you guys, I'm a little bit done with Kevin Smith. You know, it it feels like there was a time when he was sort of the poster boy of of, uh, fanboys and geek culture and all this stuff. And I don't know exactly when it was that changed. But there came a point when... He just got really fucking annoying. And I'm sure Kevin Smith is a nice guy and all that. I mean, it's not like I've ever met the guy or anything, because I haven't. But it just... I, I, I can't put a, put a thumbtack on the map and say, this is when it began. But there came a point when Kevin Smith just kind of became one of those irritating media personalities that I just wished would go the fuck away. And he hasn't. So... Here we are. And so now to get more of Kevin Smith's bullshit about a story that I've already seen a thousand fucking times on YouTube. And yeah, it's a funny story, but it's still a story that I've heard before. That part of it sort of sort of rubbed me wrong. But one of the things I will say about The Death of Superman Lives is that it does shine a little bit of a light on Kevin Smith's dismissal from the production. He always made it sound like This was a decision that Tim Burton made. Basically, Tim Burton decided, you know what? Kevin Smith has got to go. You know, I'm not going to direct this script. And the fact of the matter is the documentary actually makes it sound more like it was... Fuck, now now I'm blanking. John Peters, who fired Kevin Smith right around the time or maybe just before... Tim Burton came on to direct the film, right? This was a decision that John Peters had made. 
because Kevin Smith just wasn't getting it done. For whatever reason, Smith's work just wasn't sufficient to whatever John Peters' standards were, and so he fired Kevin Smith. And that's a little bit different than the way Smith has always told the story, where you know, Tim Burton, being this big rock star director, decided, you know what, Kevin Smith's script is a piece of shit, and we're not going to shoot this. He's got to go. And you know what? That may have even been Tim Burton's attitude, but that's not why Kevin Smith was ultimately shown the door at the production. It was actually a decision that John Peters made. So that uh, you know that was actually kind of useful in that it 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 shined a different light on a on an aspect of the production than fans have heard up to this point. And to me, this is one of those moments when the light the light bulb sort of goes off, and now you're like, ah, I understand now why exactly this documentary has value, because for so many years, I, I'll just use an analogy to put this all into some kind of better context. But for so many years, all fans ever heard about Superman the movie and Superman 2 were the perspectives of Richard Donner and Tom Mankiewicz. And that's it. We didn't hear anything from Pierre Spangler. We didn't hear anything from Ilya Salkind. All we heard was Richard Donner talking shit. And it was very easy, and I think these lines in the sand exist to this day, but it was very easy for fans to take sides and say, oh, well, the Salkinds were a bunch of, you know, corporate, idiotic douchebags, and they never knew how to make a movie, and it was only through the intervention of Richard fucking Donner that this movie turned out to be any good whatsoever. And what you find whenever the Salkinds and Pierre Spangler actually do start speaking up for themselves and defending themselves, you know what? They've got a very realistic and very rational point of view and it is at complete odds with the story that Richard Donner spent years spoon-feeding us. And so the expression goes that in every conflict there are three sides to the story. There's your side, there's my side, and then there's what in fact happened. And so I can't help but think that goings-on with Richard Donner and Tom Mankiewicz versus the Salkinds and, and Spangler are a very good example of that expression. And I can't help thinking also that goings-on with Superman Lives, with Tim Burton and with Kevin Smith, is another example of all of that. And for years, all we heard was Kevin Smith's side of the story. But when you start hearing from John Peters, and admittedly, the guy's a little bit crazy, but show me somebody in Hollywood who's gotten to be as successful as he is who's not crazy. I don't know. That's, that's a pretty tall order. Then you start hearing from Tim Burton himself, and it's easy to get a very different impression of what exactly this movie was ultimately going to be, and indeed, Kevin Smith's entire side of the story. So, and people, I've read Kevin Smith's uh, Superman script. It really is, uh, Kevin Smith even acknowledges this really is fan fiction. You know, this isn't exactly the most professional thing that he's ever written. And so, at least he knows that. And then from there, we get into, as I was saying in my little spiel with Michael Bailey, that uh, you you heard from uh, episode 66 just a minute ago, we start kind of getting into getting into that a little bit where 
I'm, not, I'm trying to think of maybe the most politic way of most politic way of putting this. That documentary that I was talking about from uh, 2006, I, th I believe it was called "Look Up in the Sky," and it was basically meant to hype up what was at the time the upcoming theatrical release of Superman Returns, and it sort of cast a light backwards at what previous film iterations of Superman might have been. The most obvious of which is obviously going to be Tim Burton's Superman film. And it's like the attitude that we were supposed to have was, well, whatever problem Superman Returns may have, at least it's not that. And I've always kind of looked back at all the leaked artwork and all the other stuff that came out from uh, the Tim Burton Superman film. And... I've always wondered if that wasn't somebody at Warner Brothers deciding, you know what, Superman Returns is a piece of shit, so we need to create this bullshit fucking narrative about the bullet that was dodged with Tim Burton's Superman film just to get fans a little bit more on board with what Brian Singer is doing. And so that's what happened. That is, or at least that's what I think happened. I think that somebody had a sort of reverse psychology idea of how to get the fans on board with Brian Singer's film based on what we may or may not have gotten with Tim Burton's film. And indeed, that did seem to be the sort of prevailing sentiment among a lot of Superman fans out there. Who's, it's, it was like their unofficial credo was, well, Superman Returns isn't perfect, but at least we didn't get a Superman in a black costume. You know, and just pretentious bullshit like that. And more and more, I actually started to think, you know what? Tim Burton would have made a Tim Burton film. There's no question about that. That's what Warner Brothers hired him to do. But this idea that he would have turned Superman into something that he just isn't. As time went on, I became less and less comfortable putting my name on that. Because one of the things that I have got to give Tim Burton and all of his films is that he's got an interesting way of cutting to the truth of a character, you know, the sort the the core essentials. So would Tim Burton's Superman film have been a celebration of the Superman mythos as me and other Superman fans have always cherished them? Maybe, maybe not. But I'm not at all convinced that he would have made something that was so fucking foreign to everything that Superman has ever stood for that the character would have been unrecognizable. I just don't believe that. And the more things went on with The Death of Superman Lives, that documentary, the more uh, conceptual artwork that we were shown, the more that people were shown uh, or, we, or rather that we were shown these little reenactments of scenes and whatnot of what might have been the more I realized, you know what, this m may have been a little bit more of a traditional Superman movie than we were willing to admit at the time. I mean, I happen to think that the death of Superman lives may be the first time that the internet was a major factor in a film's, I guess, box office prospects. I think fans so scared the shit out of Warner Brothers that they decided, you know what, this thing has gotten enough negative publicity as it is. You know, I say we just cut our losses 
pull the plug on the movie, and just chalk the whole thing up to bad luck, you know? And looking back at it, especially in light of Superman Returns, but looking back at it, I can't help but think that the death of Superman Lives... Look, there's no way that movie would have hurt me more than Superman Returns did, all right? Superman Returns, I regard as a mo- as just this monumental just fucking stab in the back, you know? And love it or hate it, I feel like Tim Burton was relatively honest enough with the type of movie, at least that it looked like he was going to make, that said, you know what? If you love this traditional, uh, you know, sort of Silver Age style Superman, you're not going to be getting that in this movie. There's just no two ways about that. But to say that this thing would have been completely, abjectly, unrecognizably Superman, I don't really get that impression either. This would have been Tim Burton's Superman, for better or for worse. And guys, we've got Superman Returns behind us. Some of you really look look back with... I think a sort of unreasonable amount of hostility at Lois and Clark. And God knows the comics are, a, are sort of a train wreck right now. And so I guess my point is this would not have been the worst version of Superman that anybody's ever seen before. I just don't buy that, you know? And one of the sort of validating parts of the death of Superman Lives came when John Schnepp, uh, he held up a, a picture of Nicolas Cage wearing... Honestly, it was a fairly cool picture of Nicolas Cage in a very Tim Burton-fied Superman outfit, but it was still recognizably a Superman outfit. And the message that, or rather the impression that I've gotten over the years is that Tim Burton initially might have thought that he could have transformed this character into something that he's just never been before, and it would have been the better for it, at least in Tim Burton's mind. And then, as he just went through his natural creative process, one of the things that he eventually came to realize is that, no, I can't do that. You know, I can't exactly make, like, a George Reeves-style Superman. I just don't have that in me. But I also can't make Edward Scissorhands Superman either. And so he was going to find this sort of interesting sort of middle ground where this was not going to be a Superman that we'd ever seen in comics or film or TV or animation or whatever else before. But it was not going to be this horrifying, nightmare, independent, art house Edward fucking Scissorhands version of Superman either. And so, seeing that picture of, of Nicolas Cage in that sort of shiny but still recognizably Superman outfit, and it didn't have red trunks on the uniform, but it did have red coloring on there. You know what? That is not the worst Superman costume that I've ever seen in live action. Not even close. And so, I guess my point here, what I'm driving at, is that, you know what? Part of me actually does kind of wish we could have seen Tim Burton's uh, Superman film now. Like, if there was a way for Warner Brothers to produce that movie now, yeah, fuck it, I'd actually be kind of interested in seeing that now. You know, and don't get me wrong. I mean, this is, you know, everything that we're talking about right now is, this is clarity that I just did not have back in 1998, 1999, around then. I just didn't have it. But I do have it now, you know, and it was a long time coming. 
And ultimately, it was Superman Returns that kind of gave me this uh, objectivity, shall we say, where I was able to look look at Superman Returns and think, you know what, this is this movie is everything that Superman should not be, you know. And on that basis, there's no fucking way Tim Burton could have thrown anything at me that would have been worse than this fucking skinny, pleather-clad bartender running around in his little fucking pleather cape, repeating old Christopher Reeve lines, and he sounds like a fucking Visa commercial, you know? It's still the safest way to travel. You know, it, it sounds like a like a Visa commercial, you know? Don't leave home without it, you know? It's... Actually, I think that's American Express, but fuck it, whatever, you get the idea, you know? Nicolas Cage, love him or hate him, would have given us a Superman that we've just never seen before. And even if he ended up becoming sort of the George Clooney of Superman, there are worse fates. You could have been the Brandon Routh of Superman. So, I don't know. Like, maybe, I don't know, just chalk it all up to bad luck. So, now excuse me, I'm... Uh, pulling off my uh, my e-cig here. Oh, for those of you who put a premium on uh, accuracy and trivia, really, this flavor is called Enter the Dragon. It's uh, manufactured by a company called Gemini. This is a uh, six milligram strength uh, nicotine level that I've gotten here. And I guess as far as flavor is concerned, I'd almost want to compare it to a uh, to a, a strawberry milkshake, you know? And uh, it's actually, I mean, of all e-cig juices that I've ever that I've ever uh, sampled in my life, this is by far my favorite. And this is just this is really, really tasty. But at the same time, you know, when it hits you, you know, like I like it. I like smoking and then feeling it like right at the back of my throat, you know, just like hits right there. And um, and so that's 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 what I like. So anyway, to get back on topic, though. As a film, you know, I really do think that Tim Burton would have made an interesting movie. And as I was watching The Death of Superman Lives, I couldn't exactly shake the the feeling that The Death of Superman Lives, as a documentary, it really does come off like a DVD extra. You know, like that sort of making of the movie kind of stuff that at least at one point they used to put on DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff like that. You know, and that's what it, that, that's how it comes off. And you, you because you have all of these talking head interviews with... Uh, I don't know, the cast and the crew of what would have been that Superman movie. And a lot of them are, are taking a fond look back at... Guys, I'll say it. These are some just incredible ideas they had for a film that I think would have been... It would have been a different flavor, you know? And there's a very strong argument that the 1990s was just not a decade to have a costumed, caped super do-gooder flying around and rescuing people. I just don't think the culture of the 1990s, at least the late 1990s, would have been open to that. You know, I don't think that wide audiences would have completely been able to wrap their heads around that. And I 
you know, on that basis, I can't help but think that there's there's a just a real possibility that they might have actually glommed on to Tim Burton's Superman movie in a way that a more reverential Superman movie might not necessarily have reached them. So I don't know. But either way, that that documentary, The Death of Superman Lives, it really it, it really does come off like this making of sort of thing. And I don't know if that's necessarily what John Schnepp was going for. Maybe, maybe not. But that is what he ended up sort of doing. And the process of it, it did kind of make me wish that, you know what? I would, like, even now, I would actually be very interested in seeing that uh, seeing that film. And, I don't know, what might have been. I mean, there are a lot of unwritten uh, chapters in Superman's history. And I guess there's no reason to think that there shouldn't be after 70-plus years of... Uh, or sorry, 76, I should say, 76 years of continuous publication and adaptation and uh, other media and, and whatnot. This just would have been, I think, an interesting sort of footnote in Superman's larger history. And maybe it would have been good. Maybe it would have been terrible. But at least it would have been, I don't know, honest and different. So there's that to think about. Anyway, so I just felt like talking through that here since it didn't really seem like this was there was going to be enough here to talk about to sustain an entire episode. I just want to put this all out here in this episode since it was sort of running short anyway. And, uh, well, now I have. So I think that should be pretty much that. Now, I can't remember if I said so in the last segment or not, so... You know, if I did, and if I'm repeating myself now, well, fuck it. You'll live. Next week, I'm going to be talking about uh, Spider-Girl, number one. I, uh, I've, In fact, I've already recorded this episode. I had Scott Rifen on, and he and I were actually supposed to talk about Spider-Girl, numbers one through four. But the nature of the conversation, it really didn't take us beyond Spider-Girl, number one. And uh, there's just a, there's a lot of commentary there. There's a lot of analysis. And uh, I'm actually really proud of that episode. I think it turned out great. It's, um, let's see. It is over two hours long, and we're talking about literally just that one, that one issue. And I've already done a, a, a sort of preview of it for myself, because that's what I do with my own shows when I'm driving to and from work. I just, you know, no time is downtime, so I just quality control check my, my shows, you know what you know what is how is the discussion flowing you know and on a technical level how well is the episode scored you know if it's scored how well is it scored you know is the music overpowering the vocal track you know all that stuff and i'm really proud of that episode i think it turned out great so anyway hoping you guys enjoy it but in any case that's going to be next week uh scott rifen and i are going to be talking for over two hours about spider girl number one so be back for that so as for me that's pretty much it bye everybody i will see you next week
you've decided to go to a nearby restaurant. You ask the hostess to seat you in a booth. As you sit, you notice an animated conversation among the four seated behind you. They're talking about Star Wars and Doctor Who and something called the Laugh Olympics. These are the people you used to pants in high school, and yet you cannot help listening. Unable to tear your ears away, you realize you've just been sucked into the Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks, weekly at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus punches reality there you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when i put them up you can friend me on facebook by searching for trentus magnus which is spelled t-r-e-n-t-u-s-s-m-a-g-n-u-s-s you can email me and my parole officer at trentus magnus at gmail.com which is spelled T-R. E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, Please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>